You're listening to the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. Today, I'm in conversation with my good friend and wildlife photographer, Tom Mason. We cover not only some of the specifics about techniques and equipment he uses, but also his strategies for learning his art of photography and how Tom plans projects and delivers incredible wildlife photos that stand out from what you might have seen elsewhere. Tom's approach to learning from masters of other artistic fields and for building a personal brand for his work is also, I think, really useful for anyone else interested in developing the art of their photography. Having worked on numerous assignments both in the UK and overseas at just the age of 23, he is also a regular contributor to numerous publications such as BBC Wildlife Magazine, Practical Photography and a number of other titles. He's a well-known blogger for Wex Photographic, writing articles and presenting a range of videos for their YouTube channel. He's also a regular lecturer, having presented at the Bird Fair, Photography Show and Scottish Nature Photography Festival, as well as for numerous organisations and educational institutions. His images have been internationally awarded, recently gaining a highly commended in the National Geographic Por el Planeta Prize. Tom has a huge passion for the environment and sharing the stories of the natural world through photography, hoping to positively engage people in order to help protect wildlife for the future. As an instructor, his aims are to help you focus your photographic vision to aid you in developing your own style, showcasing a range of techniques to equip you with the abilities to come home with a collection of shots you'll be proud of. You can see more from Tom's work on his website www.tommasonphoto.com Tom runs a YouTube channel where he shares his tips and skills to help others improve their wildlife photography as well as taking people behind the scenes of his own work www.youtube.com forward slash tommasonphoto He is on Twitter at tommasonphoto and on Instagram with the same handle The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature, just like Tom. We're a part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org. Learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Everything's off. Great. Good. Should we get started? Let's go for it. Oh, the the other thing that I'll say is just you know don't like take as long as you want in your answers. Go go where you want with it. There's really kind of no no right or wrong direction for the conversation. Okay. Cool. So Tom, I want to begin by asking what the best or most memorable wildlife moment of this week has been for you. Of this week, wow. Um, God, I suppose I watched a load of oyster catchers uh, this week along the coast. That was really lovely. I just love the sound they make, and just watching them just move along the coast was really beautiful. Just picking over and, and getting some food. I just love, you know, being able to sit along the coast and, and listen to them. They're gorgeous birds. 
yeah, my oyster catchers are my week. Although I did see a gannet out my window, so I suppose that was pretty cool as well. <laughs> that's a yeah, that's a pretty good window tick. Yeah, I do. I do like a good window tick. Uh, I got a dolphin the other day, so that's a fairly good one as well. But uh, but yeah, I think every week has little memorable wildlife moments, and yeah, there's some pretty good ones I think. And how do you make sure you've got you build in time just to enjoy wildlife into your day or your week? I think it's kind of be happy to lose yourself a little bit when you're doing other things. Um, often, you know, if I'm out working, taking pictures and, and doing work for clients, I'll make sure that I have some extra time when, you know, I just don't look through the camera and I just enjoy where I am. Uh, you know, I do a lot of the work that I do outside, so I suppose it's built into my life already in terms of just getting a chance to actually watch wildlife. Um, but even just sitting and looking out the window, I, I try and give myself at least 15 minutes a day to really just lose myself, think and, and watch because they're very important skills that the wildlife photographer has to have. Um, but yeah, I mean, just doing stuff like that and building it into my life or my morning run and things like that are great times to just see a bit of the wildlife. Cool. Okay. Um, well, I want to, I want to rewind, well, not just a little bit, but quite a long way and ask where your love of wildlife came from, how it started and what role wildlife played in your childhood. Cool. Well, I suppose I could go for the very cliche thing and see that, you know, all the Attenborough documentaries and stuff like that are where it got started. But to be honest, it was really when I moved to the farm uh, where I was lucky enough to grow up when I was um, it's about 10 years old when I moved there. And the moment that I moved to the farm, I was just surrounded by so much, you know, so much landscape to play with in terms of, you know, going and exploring and finding wildlife. And and I do everything from watching a slug on the doorstep to getting out and following the, um, the pheasants through the woods or the, the hares up on the top field. And that's somewhere I really that connected me to wildlife quite a lot. Um, and that kind of grew into um, getting involved with my local nature reserve next to it. Um, that was really the things that really kickstarted a lot for nature um, in, in the early days. So what was it that you started doing at the nature reserve when you first got involved with it? Well, because I started at such a young age, um, the first thing was just being involved in a, uh, a youth club that they had, uh, the Young Explorers Group. And I'd go down and just spend time uh, with the guys there, uh, watching and learning about wildlife, doing lots of pond dipping and stuff like that. Um, and that evolved through my time at secondary school to becoming a volunteer um, and did my work experience at the reserve when I was 15. Um, and after that, I mean, I, I literally lived at the reserve, to be honest. Um, I'd be there every single day after school, pop in on my way home. Um, and I got to spend such a wonderful time getting to know the team and, and learn from them. That was really key in me developing not only my own knowledge of wildlife, but also so a location where I could work and take pictures that was, you know, ultimately the passion that I have. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic place to get involved and, and learn more about wildlife. So was there a particular person or a particular moment, a particular wildlife moment that really helped or inspired you? I think for me, it comes down to a very good friend of mine, Keith. Uh, I met Keith probably, uh, I met Keith probably when I was uh, 14, 15, doing my work experience. And at the time, Keith was like 75, and uh, we just got talking over the uh, reserve table on a coffee break, and he showed an interest in my wildlife photography that I had, a little book that I brought with me to show them some of my pictures. And it was from that that we really struck 
um, at Gore with each other. He's someone who's done wildlife photography for a long time, not professionally, but just as an advanced enthusiast. And he really kind of took an interest in me developing it. And I remember him bringing down one of his old tripods and giving it to me. Um, and ever since then, we have been the best of friends. I call him my adopted granddad. Um, and, you know, I absolutely, um, he's really pushed me forward to develop my work, but but also just learn more about wildlife. And I don't think I'd be where I am today without him. He really is a great inspiration and someone that I always look up to when I'm producing my work. And, you know, I value his contribution the highest of everybody at all. Um, but external of that, I suppose, another person who was fantastic was I went to a workshop when I was about 13, 14 years old with Danny Green, a very well-known wildlife photographer. You know, got to go and look him up. He's superb. And he really told me to kind of focus on my photography and, and get started. And it's funny, I saw Danny at the Bird Fair a year ago now. It's hilarious that I'm a professional wildlife photographer now. And he was really excited that I'd followed my dream and made it a career. But yes, those two people were certainly um, real inspirations for me starting out. And any, any particular wildlife moments that you remember from that age that also kind of really captured your imagination or you know, really pushed you forward in, in what you were doing? I suppose there's a key moment that, although it's not a native species, the red-led partridge, um, I actually got my first picture that I was truly proud of, of one on the farm. And I crawled across some ground for about 150 metres to get this shot. And I knew what I wanted, this like out-of-focus foreground and background. And by using all the field skills that I kind of developed, I managed to get within a couple of feet to make this shot. And it was the first one um, where I really feel I made an image rather than just took one when I was on location. And that was a real key thing for me um, in terms of learning and developing. And But just those little moments around the farm, I mean, there wasn't really a key, like, flagship, just amazing moment that happened and kick-started me into doing what I do. But it was just a lot of time spent out in the field with the brown hairs and stuff like that on the farm that really helped me to develop my passion and my photography that ultimately is what I do today. Okay, so I want to I wanna go back slightly because you've already mentioned a few times your photography and clearly by the age of sort of 14, 15, you already had a physical portfolio that you were showing to people, which, which knowing you as well as I do is kind of a very Tom Mason thing to, <laughs> thing to have done by the age of 15. But when was it that you pick, first picked up a camera and why? Or did someone put one in your hands for you? How did that happen? Well, I suppose it was actually because of a book that I read, an RSPB book on bird watching, and it had a section in it about uh, photography, and I got really interested in it. And there was a section on secondhand cameras to get into photography, so I requested one for Christmas, and and luckily my mum purchased me my Olympus OM10, a film camera. Most people would never even touch film to get started nowadays, and. That was really what kick-started it for me. I had a 50mm lens that's nowhere near what you need for wildlife a lot of the time. And I'd just get blurry pictures of great tits and blue tits. But that was the, the camera that really inspired me to get into it. It was a, a manual camera. Everything was manual. And I had to learn everything about photography to get those shots right. Um, and it was a real process that kick-started me in my love of photography. Um, and now, you know, absolutely passionate about making images as I feel they're really important for the natural world but that was a real key moment for me in developing and stuff and looking back at some of those pictures now it's hilarious the uh, blurry shots but they really were what focused me in terms of moving forward and, and saving up to purchase better and better gear that I use today. 
so was it kind of a handicap having a film camera that was so basic and did, did that kind of hold you back or was that helpful in any way? I think it was a massive help actually because the thing is with people when they start in photography, understanding the fundamentals are the key principle to actually developing your photography long term. If you have a camera that can do everything for you, the problem is you're not actually thinking um, technically about how you're making a photo. You're more just relying on a camera to do its best interpretation. Whereas when you have a camera that's completely manual that does everything that you tell it to do and when you make a mistake, it makes a mistake or you get it right, it gets it right you develop your photography a lot quicker. Um, at the time, I actually kept a notebook whilst I was in the early days of uh, taking shots because you didn't have any um, exit data as you do now on modern cameras. So I'd record down every frame, the number on the roll of film and then what um, exposure I used, so my f-stop, my shutter speed and stuff like that. And that allowed me to really develop and understand the reason why some pictures came out and some didn't. And through reading around the subject, it really was a great benefit in doing that way. I think having an automated camera would have made you almost lazy in those starting years. And I don't like being lazy in anything I do. So um, I think manual always works best for me. I love having that full control over everything I do. And um, you know, starting out on a manual film camera was very good for that. So could you talk me through a little bit how over those first few years when you were doing photography, how your equipment changed, but also how you, you know, could you say a little bit more about how you developed those skills, not just understanding the camera, but also how you began to develop the field skills that are also essential to, to wildlife photography? And how did you fit that in around school as well, which, you know, <laughs> as a kid, you have to be at school day in, day out, and that can take up so much of your time that it's hard to you know, become a real expert in something outside of outside of the curriculum sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there's the classic, you know, I, I watch loads of videos, people like Chase Jarvis, that's fantastic. Um, the 10,000 hours rule that he always comes back to, the idea if you haven't done 10,000 hours, you can't be an expert. So to get started doing that, um, you know, learning as a kid, as you say, you've got to go to school. So I just get up at five o'clock in the morning instead. And I'd do two hours of photography on the farm and then come home, get changed, and then go to school. And then after having been at school all day, I'd come home and do another four or five hours of photography in the evening. And, you know, when you've got a farm outside your door, you can definitely do that and make the most of it. But I think for anyone, you know, with a back garden or anything like that, you can definitely find subjects to photograph. It's about that dedication and constant honing of your skills and your craft somewhere local is the key. Um, I always say that local is the key because if you want to learn, um, you can't do it at some distant location. I mean, you can't go to the rainforest every five minutes and you can't go um, to Svalbard to photograph polar bears, but you can photograph butterflies and plants in your back garden. And there's a really great way to teach yourself and learn. Um, but in terms of actually learning, I never had any um, formal education in terms of photography. I taught everything myself in terms of watching um, videos online, plus, you know, just going out and practicing with the camera, reading magazines and books and, and constantly looking at the masters of photography to really develop my skills. Um, not imitating, but looking at the techniques they used and trying to apply those to my own work is a great way to develop your skills. Um, and constantly putting my pictures against those that I saw as leading in the field um, to champion and, and, and try and push my work forward. If you compare yourself all the time to your peers, to people of your own age, you, you find that you don't really push yourself as hard as if you compare yourself to the best in the industry. Um, so that's something I always did. But, you know, 
constantly working is the only way to do it. And, you know, if you're not prepared to get up at five o'clock in the morning and stay out till 10 o'clock at night, even though you've got to be at school the next day and take the odd day off school to make the most of a project, then you're probably not dedicated enough to really um, pursue it as your as your real dream. Yeah. And you mentioned drawing inspiration from experts just then, and you mentioned Chase Jarvis as well, who who I really admire, not just in terms of his photography, but also kind of his ethic and some of the strategies he employs. You, you said that you looked at what other kind of world-leading photographers were doing and their technique. How, how from just looking at a photographer's photo, were you determining what the technique that they used was? How do you go about figuring that out? So I suppose the the aim is to deconstruct a photo to how that it was how it was made. Um, so for example, if we use Danny Green as an example, he's a fantastic photographer. But uh, one of the techniques that Danny uses a lot is he uses a long lens and shallow depth of field to isolate a subject and create a really stunning uh, picture that has um, these lovely blurry foregrounds and backgrounds that render everything out of focus other than the main subject he wants to um, show you. So how do you deconstruct that? Well, firstly, you look at what's in focus. It's a small amount. It's the eye or the subject he wants. And the depth of field is very limited. So from that, I can draw the conclusion that he's probably using an f-stop of around f4 or 5.6 to get that in focus, but blur the rest out. The compression of the shot is something that you'd feature from a longer lens. Um, So you're not going to get that sort of shot from a wide angle. So he must be using a telephoto of 300 to 500 mil. Um, And then a shutter speed to freeze the action is going to need to be um, 500th of a second or, or faster. And by looking at a picture and bringing those about it and writing them down in a book, you can very quickly start to analyze techniques that people use to make beautiful pictures and then draw those and use them yourself. Um, And that's something that I did a lot, but you've got to be very careful not to, not to really just copy people. You've got to interpret and use it in your own way. And that's why drawing from as many people as possible, going to people like Charlie Hamilton James with his fantastic wide angle approach to wildlife or, you know, Vincent Munio is a fantastic photographer. I just love his subtle photography. It's so gorgeously well done. And just taking inspiration from so many people, it allows you to draw and develop what you want to photograph and how you want to do it. And by doing that, you can grow um, and kind of develop your own skills and your own um, your own style, as it were, that is the, the ultimate thing that you want to do. But I would still say that I don't have a fully defined style yet. I mean, I'm 24 and I don't expect to have one until I'm at least... 40 odd because I think I want to continue growing but yes by deconstructing and then reconstructing you can develop and understand the the ways that people shoot so just to be just to be clear about it you you were looking at other people's photos and literally taking down written notes on interpreting what they had done then taking those notes out with you into the field and then kind of riffing on what they had done so not repeating it but maybe experimenting with some of the techniques or combining different ones from different people yeah, I'd say you know, definitely the writing down at home. I wouldn't take the notes into the field. I'd just remember the ideas. And by planting ideas in your head a lot of the time, when you're in the field, you, you know how to do it. Uh, and that's how I'd work. But yeah, it's very simple like that, you know, just developing on other people's work and pulling those techniques into, into what you do. Cool. And I also want to kind of try and make this accessible maybe to someone out there who's potentially listening and thinking of taking up photography so what would you say to that person who's just listened to everything you've just said and has no idea what a five hundredth of a second shutter speed is or no idea what an f-stop of 3.5 means 
I'd say that the first thing to do is, you know, the basic understanding of photography is actually far easier to understand than a lot of people um, think, really. Uh, if you take a manual camera and you go out, you'll very soon find that if your shutter speed's too high, you get a black picture uh, and nothing's there. It's just dark. And if your um, aperture is too uh, shallow, well, you don't get anything can focus. And really by experimenting is, is how you learn. But there's a load of great information out there. I mean, we've talked about Chase Jarvis. And he's a fantastic uh, Creative Live. is a brilliant website. It's got a load of information about photography. It's free access to watch and get all the videos there. And, you know, you go on YouTube, there's huge numbers of uh, people giving information. I personally have a channel that I'm promoting to give people information about wildlife photography. But that sort of stuff, you can easily learn um, the kind of technical side of it. I think the much harder thing to learn is your personal style and how you actually make a beautiful picture, the composition and things like that. And the only way to really learn that is to go out in the field and take a huge number of pictures, but also to make sure that you you really kind of delve into the community, the you know the artistic realm, and just look at a lot of beautiful stuff, and then kind of come to a realization of why you think it's beautiful and trying to interpret that in your own work. And not necessarily just wildlife photos or even not necessarily just photos, right? Oh, no, God, no. Um, don't just look at wildlife pictures because if you just look at wildlife photos, you'd just be so bored. Um, yeah, so many are so similar. You look at architecture, look at art, look at Renaissance artists, look at um, some of the great painters, look at Picasso, look at everybody. You know, the more inspiration you take, the just wider pool you have to draw on um, in terms of creating your work. Um, you know, look at architecture. I love staring at buildings, line, shape and form. And the more you draw and bring from that, you can develop your work in so many ways. I look at probably thousands of pictures every month from photographers who are wildlife, who are landscape, who are portrait, fine art, everything. Because the trick to kind of developing is to understand that there is value in everything you're going to see in the world, as long as you accept and try to find the value from it. Um, if you just kind of overlook something and think, well, that isn't what I do, so I'm not gonna look at it, you miss a great opportunity to learn something that you could really develop from. And can you, can you give an example of a way in which you've taken something that you've seen that a painter has done or that an architect has done or some someone creative and you've applied that in some way to your photography i think in terms of architecture i, I love looking at the buildings just outside of liverpool street station they've got really um harsh black lines the natwest building for example or the gherkin they've got these really wonderful black lines and then the, the light that comes off the windows is really nice and harsh um and a couple of years ago, I was working on a project photographing kingfishers, and I wanted to create an image that was a little bit different. So instead of getting a kingfisher in, you know, in all its color, I actually decided to shoot a picture in a silhouette under an old bridge that I was working on, a fantastic old tank bridge that had these wonderful harsh lines and forms of the metal structure, um, and then simply rendering them into black and underexposing to get a silhouette. I could have the kingfisher small in the frame as a silhouette, but with the white contrast in the back, um, and that's the way that I kind of take inspiration to develop pictures. You know, a lot of people would say that, well, oh, they have no, absolutely no corresponding link. But in my mind, um, it's the visual cues of that um, that I take into my photography. Yeah, I've seen that photo. And I think 
as you said, it that photo really achieves what you set out to because the silhouette of that bird is so identifiably a kingfisher and yet it's unlike almost any other kingfisher photo I've ever seen. And I can also, now that you've explained what your inspiration was partially for it, I can see what you've done there with drawing in the influence of those buildings. I suppose, I suppose that leads me on to a, a follow-up question about distinguishing yourself. And you said so much wildlife photography is the same and I think that's definitely true and one of the things that you've often talked about when when we've been in conversation or when I've seen you give presentations is about setting out to try and do something different and being aware before you step out the front door of what's already out there say you're going out to photograph a certain species of bird knowing what other photos have been taken before so would you say that trying to do something fresh and different is really central to the wildlife photography that you do? Yeah I mean to be honest I don't want to take pictures that other people have already taken. I think there's so many great pictures and great record pictures of subjects, but a really great photograph is when you can add something extra to it. You can show showcase a piece of personality, a trait of a bird or something like that. And, you know, sometimes people, pictures do come out looking similar. Like I do use a long lens and I like to make a, a nice clean portrait of animals. But at the same time, they don't end up being my most favorite pictures. Um, they end up being ones that are on the hard drive and go to a stock library, but they're not something that goes up on my wall. The pictures as I look around me that are on my wall are pictures that, quite frankly, I've shown to no one just yet. Um, they're stuff that I'm really passionate about, and they they have to have a little bit of you in them as well. I think that photograph that you make has to be the subject, the moment, but also a bit of your artistic flair and skill to make something a bit different and you know if you do do the same thing over and over again it does get a bit dull so mixing it up in terms of going out the door and only taking a 70 to 200 mil lens rather than a 500 mil or saying you're only going to photograph wide angle stuff or macro stuff you know you can force yourself to be different uh, and interpret stuff in a different way and I think that's a key thing that in order to be different you have to push yourself to do okay that's really that's really great. Um, so I think I think so far we've already got a a, re, a really strong sense of the fact that you do so many different things. So the next question that I wanted to ask is how do you stay focused on the most important thing that you're doing? That, you know, this week, for example. I think one of the most important ways to stay focused is to have projects. Um, I always have long-term projects and I always talk about them and, and some of them seem to drift on for years and you know the the idea of losing focus is something that you have to be very real and competent at making sure you refocus yourself and I keep an Evernote notebook of everything I'm doing, uh, the photos I want to create, the sort of images I want from it and then I also keep notes on um, how long it's been since I've got a photo on that project, how um, long it's taken me to get that shot, what time of year I should be shooting that. And by doing that, I can create a plan of what I should be doing over the next coming weeks. Um, you know, my diary has not only the dates of my lectures and things like that that I do, it also has the dates of when is good for a certain subject, when is good for a certain condition, or when is good for high tide or anything like that. And by using those and planning them in, you can kind of create um, – more of a defined route of what you're going to do and when you're going to do it um, and making sure yourself you're constantly looking at you know your plan is a good way to keep yourself focused but I suppose a lot of the time as well it's important to lose yourself at moments 
Um, because when you lose yourself, um, you are creative. You do come up with something a little bit different. And you have to take days where you go, I'm not actually going after a certain subject today. I'm just going to go and make pictures that I feel like making. Um, of course, you know, there's long-term projects that I'm working on now that I've been working on one of them for a year and a half and I've got six pictures um, and I only like three of them. And hopefully we'll get some more of the next coming year. But, you know, it's that long-term process and that drive. But the drive ultimately comes back from producing pictures that are going to showcase the natural world in a way that people connect to it, in a way that people will hopefully connect with a story I'm trying to show um, and hopefully, you know, do something about it. And that's the ultimate drive to a shot. But largely, I think it does come down to this utter determination that you will get the image and that I'm regimented in making sure that I keep notes and things like that for where and what I'm working on within my projects. So I, so I really like the specifics that you touched on there about using Evernote to keep track of your project and writing down when you last took a took an image for that particular project. Have you got a, in terms of keeping focus just day in, day out, have you got a particular routine that you have or maybe the, the first couple of hours of your day, your morning, have you got a particular routine to that to get you focused on what you're doing for that, for that day? For me, in terms of like being self-employed, if you're not focused, you can drift so easily. So, um, I like to get up early. I, I like being up early, not always ridiculously early. If I'm out on a project, I might be up at like three o'clock in the morning, but you know, six o'clock sort of time in the morning, I'll get up, I'll come downstairs. And the first thing I, I won't do is check my emails. I don't really like to check my emails that early because it distracts you. Um, I always like to get something done before I start, um, you know, make a cup of coffee and really get something done. It would be editing, editing a couple of pictures or, you know, writing down some of the things that I'm going to do. I always keep lists and I make a list the night before of the things and key things I've got to do the next day. Um, and so I'll hit a couple of those tasks off um, before I kind of get into my day. Um, if I'm feeling a bit down, I'll go for a run, stuff like that, really to energize myself. I mean, keeping fit and healthy is important as well. Um, but then after having done a couple of tasks, it kind of gets you in the momentum of working. Um, and then I'll be, you know, sorting emails or anything like that that I need to do. But as a week, I try to only have maybe two days in the office and the rest um, doing something and getting out, taking pictures. Because although office work is really important and I'm doing a bit more of it at the moment than I'd probably like to, um, long term being out in the field is where I want to be. So by keeping very regimented and focused, I can get more time out with the camera and, and that's what I like to do. And can I just go back to the, the running, which, you know, obviously physical exercise has really important benefits for mood and for focus, but also how important is staying in shape to be able to being able to do the, like at times quite taxing outdoor work that you do that comes with wildlife photography? Yeah, I mean, you've got to stay healthy, you've got to stay fit. I mean, my camera bag can weigh 25 kilos at time you've got to lug it about for a long distance and I mean that keeps me pretty fit in itself but um you know just keeping yourself in good shape making sure that you know you're getting your run in it's not only about the kind of physical fitness but it's also the mental fitness you know being out and just being able to clear your head for a little bit I've come up with some of my best pictures on my run um I'll be thinking about how the shot's going to pull together the lighting conditions and things like that and then get home absolutely energized and grab a notepad and draw them down. Um, but as you say, you know, the physical effort of being out, it's important to be well because sometimes I can sit on location for, you know, 12, 13 hours at a time and 
you know, it's cold, it's not nice, and you've got to be mentally focused, but also um, physically able to deal with it. Um, and that comes down to, you know, just putting in the effort a lot of the time, the kind of winter training to make sure you're ready for your pictures. It seems a bit silly, but it's certainly something you have to do. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask about the projects that you do, the long-term ones that might take three months or six months or, or longer at times. What are the criteria that you use to decide, yes, I'm going to do this project or say yes to this project that someone has offered me? You know, your time is probably quite a scarce resource, particularly if you're self-employed and making your money from your photography. So how are you filtering all the potential different ideas that you might come up with or other people might put on the table in front of you? I think I always try to think of money last. Um, as much as money is ridiculously important, you know, you have to live and stuff like that. If a project is what I truly believe is an absolute valuable thing that should be done, I'd, I'd like to go and shoot it. Um, and I'll make every possibility to go and do it. But it probably comes down to the idea of what benefit it has to a species. Um, has it been covered before? Has there is there a load of coverage on something? If something's been really well documented, then I probably won't go and do it because you know there's a lot on it before. You know it has to be different, as I've said. Um, but then it will come down to the you know what's it going to provide? Can I help support a conservation project through that? Can I help push something forward and get people to look at something in a different way? And when I can do that, that's a project I'll grab with both hands and definitely do and commit a year, two years, five years to it if I really believe in it. And that's something that I'm working on at the moment, project uh, that I'm doing right now. But a lot of the time with the smaller projects, they tend to have an end goal, be it, you know, you know, as I said, a showcase for a certain subject or stuff like that, or a portfolio or a lecture or something like that, um, that I'll develop and build on. But a lot of the time, the justification of time is simply because I'd love to do it. And I think one of the things I've always come back to with photography and doing it as a job is if I ever give up the enjoyment and love for doing it, I won't want this as a career anymore because it will absolutely ruined everything. So love and passion for what I do has to be at the core of me choosing anything that I'm going to do. Um, that's definitely my first consideration. But of course, you know, being self-employed, money comes down to it and certain projects pay very well or pay better than others. So you have to take those on. But kind of, you know, comparing the time commitment, I'll make judgments based on if I want to do it, if I need to do it, uh, and then try and balance those within my career to, to get everything sorted. And what's the feeling like when you've completed a project and you're, you're satisfied with the results that you've delivered? How does that feel? It, it's amazing. It's also deflating. Um, it's amazing because you've, you've achieved, you've got, you've got some of the pictures you're really happy about. But you can be deflated as well because it's kind of the end to something. You feel like something's a bit missing now. You're not doing it anymore. Um, but also it drives you to go to that next one, to go right what am I going to do now? What's the next thing I want to showcase and, and show people? And that's really a great way. And the fact is, as a photographer, the brilliant thing with an end of a project, it hasn't really ever ended. Um, I photographed foxes for like six, nine months when I was um, in my last year of school. Um, and I thought I'd finished that project. But, you know, a year later, another opportunity to photograph foxes. And there I am uh, spending another three, three weeks photographing them. And I'm still photographing them now, you know, all of these things build up and projects that you kind of finish, you sometimes never have. 
Um, but stuff that has a defined time limit, um, it is nice when you finish it because, you know, that deliverable, that magazine piece or that article or that, you know, just it going out and people seeing it um, is a really fulfilling uh, process. And it's one of the things I really do love about my job being a photographer. Mm. So I want to I want to stick on this project theme for just a couple more a couple more minutes. I wanted to ask say say there's someone out there who's doing some photography, but they're you know they've they're not doing it seriously or professionally, and they they want to go from just taking lots of photos to focusing on a project of a particular subject. How would they plan a project? I think the first thing is, of course, to decide on your subject. Um, and then you've got to write down a selection of criteria of why you're photographing that subject and why you want to showcase that subject. Because if you don't want to showcase the subject, you're probably not going to do a very good job. Um, and after you've done that, it's to dive into the research, um, looking at what has already been done, what pictures can be created, what sort of shots might you like to make. And then in terms of that research as well, looking at other subjects and photographic um inspiration and different types of shot that you'd like to try and make with the project you're doing and once you've got that dialed in it's then time to really for me i draw out images that i'm going to make so i'll almost storyboard shots that i want to design and get when i'm in the field uh, and that really helps you to visualize them when you're out behind the camera or setting up a remote camera or anything like that, um, that because you already kind of know the image you're going after it's much easier to find and set up on location. And by coming back to that and comparing the pictures you're getting with your shots that, you know, your outline, you can develop a project that's going to be quite cohesive, that's going to work together. Um, in long term, it's going to give you a nice portfolio of shots that's far more powerful than just having a couple of random pictures of a certain subject. And within that, what I would try to do is make sure you've got um, – you know, that close-in portrait shot that you've got, that nice, uh, the wide-angle shot that you've got, the habitat image. But you've also got the images that showcase a bit of the subtleties of a creature that you're working with. They don't necessarily have to show the animal itself. They could be more about the habitat. Um, and once you've brought all those things together, you have quite a nice project um, that is much nicer to show people than just, you know, as I said, a, a couple of random photos. And so I suppose, you know, if you've got that huge range of, well, that range of shots showing different elements of a particular subject creature, then that makes it easier to pitch that to, you know, a magazine that might want to buy that. But I, I all, and we might come back to that in a moment, but I also wanted to ask what for you is the, is the power of wildlife photography? And we've referred to this a couple of times already in passing. How, how does wildlife photography link with nature conservation for you? If it does at all. I think, the thing is with conservation is I'm a fantastically passionate conservationist. I love protecting environments, but a lot of people don't get to see what's going on. You know, nature reserves are there. And if you live in the city, well, very rarely are you going to come into contact. But if a good wildlife picture can make you stop and make you think and make you really take a moment to pause your life to consider animals and stuff like that, then that's what great nature photography is about. It's about connecting people with the environment because you know in these busy social media lives people have now they're not always looking out the window but if they're looking at their phone and they scroll down and see a beautiful picture that they go god i'd really love to go and see one of those you've connected someone with something that will hopefully make a difference and if 
that imagery is used for conservation charities who then, you know, can raise money for conservation through that, then that's brilliant. I mean, one of the reasons I love contributing to the RSPB's stock library is I know that any pictures I sell directly help finance conservation work, and it's a brilliant um, thing to be involved in. But that, to me, is the ultimate end goal, really, is just to make someone consider and want to get involved with wildlife a little bit more. And I think that's what good nature conservation uh, and nature photography can do. Mm, okay. So we've been we've been friends for, I don't know, I can't even do the numbers in my head, but we've been friends for quite a few years now, maybe, maybe six or seven years. Um, yeah. And I feel like during that time, I've really noticed you shift from not just being an amazing wildlife photographer, but also transition into being a really accomplished business person. And part of that is that you've spent a significant chunk of your time building up networks and promoting yourself, which is really what I want to go on to discuss a little bit more now. So I was wondering if I could just ask a little bit more about how you've gone about building up a network of contacts, why you've done that, why it's important to what you do today. Okay. Um, well, starting off with building contacts, I think the first thing you have to do is know your craft and, and make your pictures. I never really approached people before. I was quite confident with my pictures that I was producing. I think that's really important. Um, but in terms of building contacts, really, it's about getting involved in the community because there's lots of people who've helped me. So getting involved in helping other people is a great way to um, kind of introduce yourself. You know, putting stuff out on social media and showcasing it to people and showing people what you do and why you do it is really important. Uh, so getting started with that. I mean, the great thing about social media is it's free. You can put your pictures out there. You can start a blog. You can do all these things. And, you know, it's a great way to get people looking at your work. But one of the greatest ways that you've got to develop is, is in person. And I think that, you know, you have to talk to people. You have to go and um, show people what you do and talk to them of why you do it. Um, and I spend a lot of time going to different events and doing stuff like that um, and talking to people about my work and trying to cultivate um, relationships. But with those relationships, I don't want them to be based just on the idea of me getting business or anything like that. I only work with people who I am really kind of fond of in terms of their, their product, their company and what they um, what they do. Because if I don't align myself with the businesses that I am going to work with, I don't really feel I can do a good job for them or that they would be good for me. So it's very important to, to understand where you want to be in the marketplace before you try and start trying to pitch to people. Um, that's really important. But a lot of the thing is it's groundwork. It's, it's you know, there's no easy way, no jumpstart version of getting there. You just have to put the legwork in and, and talking to people at lots of different things. And that's personally how I did it. And how are you picking which events to go to to do that in-person meeting? Are you just doing as many as possible or is there some sort of filtering process there? I'll do the events that you know are key in the industry. So for the photography show, um, is a great one at the NEC, the Bird Fair, for example, a fantastic opportunity to meet loads of like-minded conservationists and, and people involved in the conservation industries. Uh, they'd be the two big ones I'd hit first in, in, in terms of talking to people and then once you talk to people at those events you'll find that you go to other events such as the outdoor show and things like that and by going to more and more of these you find that you meet regularly the same people and you develop relationships around that um, and that's how I choose them. The filtering system is basically of how much time I have that is not too much um, and what I'm going to get back from that 
And for me, you know, the bigger shows are much more useful because I can spend four days at a show um, and have a lot of meetings built in. Whereas if I go to smaller shows where I'm not going to meet as many people, it, you know, the kind of investment of time isn't, doesn't give me as many benefits. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, just being at places and always being ready. You know, I've met people who have been in a hide at Snettersham or, or on the North Norfolk coast. I need to get talking to them, give them a business card and find out that they actually are someone who works with a certain company and then I have work with them. You're only, you have to promote yourself the whole time and just talking to people. And I think one of the biggest things is being very true to what you do and who you are. Um, I'm a photographer. I'm a wildlife photographer. That's what I do. And I love telling people about it. I love engaging people with it. Uh, it doesn't matter if I'm on downtime or, you know, at work, I, I'm still me. And I think that's very important because you have to be what you are and, and, and live that the whole time. And you'd be surprised when and where you'll meet people who are really important to your career down the line. Mm. So I want to focus in on maybe an example of how you've done that. And there are, there are so many different ones that I could choose from. But um, I was wondering if I could ask a bit more about the work that you've done in the Falklands and um, maybe start by asking how that opportunity came about. <laughs> Well, I mean, that opportunity came about because I literally wanted to go to the Falklands since I was oh, tiny. You know, the idea of photographing penguins on British soil, as it were, was something that really attracted me. And whilst I was at the bird fair, pretty much um, I, I speak to a lot of people. And I, I went to the Falklands Conservation Stand because, uh, and the Falklands Tourist Board Stand because I wanted to talk to them about um, the idea of getting there. And through talking to the people and not really realizing that I was talking to the, you know, the manager of the whole um, Falkland Arts Tourist Board, um, I, really, I happened to impress him and show him some of my pictures and he was really excited. And then, of course, following that up with an email, one of the key things you have to do, you can't make a connection and then not follow it up. We got onto the idea of me going on a press trip to the Falklands and that's something that came about. And then I was lucky enough to be um, sent to the Falklands to spend a couple of weeks photographing down there. It was absolutely brilliant. And that largely came about by putting yourself out there and going and talking to people. You know, if I wouldn't have walked up to that stand and started that conversation, I would have never have got there. You know, it's very easy to say, I could. It's much harder to actually just go and go and give it a go. Um, but that's something that, you know, as an example, was a fantastic one where I never knew that was going to be the outcome when I first, first approached them. So could you maybe talk about one of the most one of the photos from that trip that you're most pleased with or perhaps one of the most challenging photos that you got and and how you went about getting that shot I think from the whole trip was reasonably challenging because you have a limited amount of time the moment you have a limited amount of time you have to really work quickly and efficiently and this comes back to the idea of knowing your craft and um, you don't ask someone for a massive trip um, when you might not come back with the goods um, so because you're working quite quickly, um, one of my favorite pictures is a super wide angle picture of some rock hopper penguins. And, you know, we'd been, I've been on the Falklands for not even 12 hours and we were on one of the little islands we're on Bleecker Island. And so I got up at four o'clock in the morning and having only landed at 10 o'clock the night before, um, I was out on location lying down, waiting for sunrise and just right with the penguins right next to me they were walking around me and I really had an incredible chance to be so close to them and luckily enough one of the uh, one of the uh, small pairs of penguins just was right in front of me came right up to me um, and posed merely 
a couple of inches from the end of my lens. One of the key things is to stay very still, um, to be as silent as you can, but also to be able to work very quickly in the situation. I simply was in manual mode, adjusted my flash power to get the shot I wanted and then took two pictures and then they were gone. Um, you know, you have to be able to work like that. But that shot really came out quite beautifully and I really love that picture. And, you know, basically being on the first day that I was there um, was a really great entrance into the trip, a trip that I shot easily 6,000 pictures from over the, over the coming weeks. And what were what were some of the other wildlife that you, you encountered or you were photographing while you were over there as well? The elephant seals were brilliant. They were great fun to work with. Um, and also the caracaras, just such a such an inquisitive bird that no matter where you put your camera back down, you'd have one just pecking around it and coming over. Uh, the Gentoo penguins, of course, because, you know, bursting out of the sea, um, out of the waves, was fantastic fun. Um, and getting pictures of those actually came back to a project I did on seals uh, in Norfolk a couple of years ago. You know, the, the practice that was capturing a seal jumping out of the waves was something that I could replicate in terms of the penguins that are much quicker than seals. Um, but, you know, those skills that you develop from one project are very transferable to another. Um, I was lucky enough to pull some really nice pictures from that uh, short stint, stint up on a carcass island in the Falklands. So where could, just, just to fill people in, where could they see those photos if they wanted to go and, go and check some of them out? Um, they will be on my website shortly. I'm updating at the moment, but it's at uh, www.tommasonphoto.com um, and they'll be featured there. There was also being uh, put out by the uh, Falkland Isles Tourist Board. They have a selection that they're going to be showcasing over the, over the next couple of months. Um, but also I did a lecture at the bird fair about the trip and stuff like that. So that's been great. Um, and a lot of the time I do lectures about my trips, so they could definitely see them there over the coming years. Cool. Well, that moves us on nicely. So I wanted to ask about the lectures, but also things like your your YouTube channel. And, um, you know, in doing something like a YouTube channel, you're sharing really behind the scenes a lot of the techniques and stuff that you do. And, you know, I was listening to I was listening to an interview with Chase Jarvis, actually, where he said something something along the lines of, you know, he was one of the first people to do this kind of behind the scenes sharing of the the secrets of photography and he was very frowned upon within the photography community for for doing that because it was seen as kind of giving away the secrets of this magician's guild kind of thing why for you is it important to share the behind the scenes kind of process of how you're achieving what you're achieving wouldn't it be better for you you know in a business sense to keep that stuff secret well, the thing is, like, I'm, I'm a passionate photographer and I'm a passionate conservationist. And one of the biggest things I believe is that in terms of wildlife photography, we have to make sure that across the board, everyone's doing a very good job. You know, because when you go out and you have a lot of equipment and you're also going and almost being invasive in terms of trying to get pictures, conducting yourself in a very careful manner is very important. So I wanted to start a channel to not only share tips of how to make beautiful pictures, but also how to do it in a way that's going to be very respectful um, for animals. But, you know, coming back to the idea of giving secrets away, like, you know, it's not, I, I don't really care if people know how I took a shot. You know, the reason I take a shot is because I want to make it. And it doesn't matter if they know my techniques and how I've done it. The idea of them copying my creative vision at a certain moment it's very difficult to do you can only really produce your own pictures as it were you can copy people as much as you like but it's still a copied photo 
I love equipping people with the, the skills to go and make beautiful pictures because I understand that the passion and the and the love that comes from doing that and the ability that it connects people with wildlife. And, you know, if people want to connect with wildlife through photography, I'm not going to be someone who puts barriers in the way of them doing it as well because I know the level of, like, passion that I have for, for taking wildlife pictures. And I think really, you know, sharing these, these techniques is, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about people taking quote unquote better pictures than me because I'm giving them my skills. Um, that doesn't really matter to me in any way, shape or form. I just like being able to help being part of a community that really champions people um, making wonderful pictures of wildlife and, and doing it in a very um, caring and, and loving manner. And I think that's really important. Um, but yeah, I, that's why I really started the YouTube channel um, in, in in kind of response to a community that asked me so many questions that I decided that, well, why don't I give you a load of answers? Yeah, nice. And you're reaching, you haven't been doing it that long and you're already reaching thousands of people. Is, is there Has there been a time or an example of when rather than reaching that mass market of people with your advice, you've had a much more one-to-one kind of mentoring relationship with someone who you've been out where you've been able to help them with their photography. I think there's been lots of occasions where I really get to spend time and, and teach people. I mean, I've taught courses and stuff like that. I mean, me and you get to spend loads of time going out taking pictures. That's great fun. This is true. Uh, <laughs> we don't get to do it as much as we used to, but you know, it's certainly been so much fun when we've got out taking shots, you know, when we went up to the, uh, we're in you know all around Norfolk and stuff like that really great fun but a lot of the time I you know I really like being able to help young people out I, I've been up to um, Nottingham University the last couple of years to lecture as part of their master's program that's been really good fun to talk to the new students who are coming through and uh, just give them a bit of advice about shooting pictures and stuff like that as well as there was a great young man called timmy who came to my local nature reserve uh, came one of my first uh, workshops i ever did and pretty much every year i see him at the bird fair uh, and this year he came up to me whilst i was on the nikon stand and i got to give him some really good advice and that was really great fun um, and his pictures are really coming on rather well you know little things like that are really great fun to be part of and you know i just like to help people improve their pictures and also have a chance to connect with nature and you know on a daily basis yeah i must say the the trip that we took to suffolk and norfolk and particularly the morning where which we spent photographing purple sandpipers when we crawled out on our bellies along nest point the most easterly point on the uk mainland in the middle of winter in the soaking wet seaweed and ended up <laughs> freezing cold, drenched and basically like having to strip off in the car park afterwards and check like completely changed. That was, you know, that was just so enjoyable. And, you know, we also kind of, as we were doing it, you were giving me pointers on technique and stuff. And I think, you know, I love spending time just observing wildlife and enjoying wildlife for its own sake, but there's also something really fantastic about, you know, learning techniques and, doing stuff on the go kind of testing it in real time and yeah that was that was really fun and you are someone who really shares you know shares your skills and shares your advice and tries to help other people learn i think because at the end of the day like you know i want you to come back with a picture that is really you um you know i can't make a picture for you but you can make a great picture that really sums up your experience and you know if i can help you with a technique that allows you to make a shot that you're really proud of then I'm really proud of that too. Yeah. 
So I, I, I thought about asking a question about equipment, but I think we could probably spend two hours alone just talking about equipment. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of veering away from asking a very broad question, which is just what photography equipment do you use? And I think people can probably find more stuff on your website, your blogs, your YouTube channel. If they want to find out more about equipment, then there's plenty of stuff that you've done and that other people have done that they can delve into. So I was maybe going to ask something a bit more specific, which is, say you were to go out into the field this afternoon, what are the five key bits of equipment that you would have to take with you? If you were limited to five, what would you take? Number one, my binoculars. First thing that go in the bag, because it's very difficult to find anything if you know can't even see it in the first place. Um, secondly, would be you know my, my DSLR, my main camera, be it a D500, D850, whatever it's going to be, and I choose that depending on what I'm going to photograph. If I want small birds, then the 500, um, the 850 for you know the landscapes and stuff like that. But the 850 is probably my choice for most things, um, and. In the old days, I'd have probably definitely gone for my super telephoto straight away um, as a one to kind of dial in and get those nice portraits. But nowadays, that's, I'd a, re- that's, that's a really significant zoom lens, right? Yes, yes, yeah. A big, like, uh, 300mm or 500mm lens is a long lens uh, that gets you closer to your subject. Um, and I probably would have picked one of those. But now I would go to more of a mid-range zoom because it gives me more scope for creating those um, environmental portraits and things like that, something that I find... Nowadays, I, I'm moving towards in terms of the way that I frame up and compose. So my 70s to 200 would be the next thing in my bag. So we're now at three things. My fourth thing would be my coat. Um, you know, always having a really decent jacket with you um, is is so vital because, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to spend a long time on location, you've got to be comfortable. Uh, it doesn't matter how much camera gear you've got with you. If you're not comfortable, you can sit there. Um, so that's really important. And the other thing is probably my packed lunch. Uh, I know it sounds really silly, but, you know, if you're hungry, you're going to leave. And once again, you can have all the camera gear under the planet. But if you're not actually going to wait out and wait for your subject, then actually uh, you won't get any decent shots at all. So, yes, my my main camera, my mid range zoom and some good outdoor gear, uh, my binoculars to find my subject are probably the key things that I would never leave home without. Cool. That's really nice. And yeah, like I said, we could have spent potentially ages talking about equipment and you've also done a really good video which i think uh people should definitely go and watch about the process of editing photos as well maybe maybe let's just touch on that for a minute actually what what kind of to you are the key elements of um processing photos once you've got back in you've eaten your lunch you found your subject you photographed it you've got two thousand photos on your memory card what then comes next and what are the key kind of things that people should think about before they sit down and just start editing photos i think the first thing is you edit in camera so in terms of like when i shoot um you know back in the day i probably would have shot a couple of thousand pictures sometimes but now i very rarely shoot more than probably a hundred or something like that you know editing those key moments before i ever take the picture coming forward from that you know you go into lightroom i bring everything into lightroom because that's how i work in my process everything is a raw image because i want the best image quality i can get and then i'll put them on i'll get the high-res files i'll make a cup of tea and i'll sit down and basically um often i'll just save them to my hard drive to start with um 
And then I won't touch them for a couple of days. And I think one of the things that you have to do with editing images is it's much better to come back to them a few days later. If you come back to them immediately, you have a, an immediate connection to them and you don't look at them in the same kind of like practical approach as you do a couple of days after. And when you come back a couple of days after and you look at the shots, um, what I'll do is simply bring them up full screen uh, and go through them, tabbing right. Um, anything that I quite like gets two stars um, and anything that doesn't, doesn't get anything. And then I'll toggle that down and, and then only look at the two stars and then apply three stars to the ones that are my favorite before I edit them. Probably only editing five or six pictures from 100 um, as my absolute best ones. And then when I go into that, um, for me, if an edit takes longer than five minutes or so really the shot probably wasn't that good to start with i mean there's sometimes when heavier processing is important based on what the subject actually is um, especially if it's an extremely rare picture and you want to save it but largely i just do the basics in terms of my tonal curve and making sure that my my white balance and everything is right and the saturation is correct for how it looked but I really like to keep my processing as minimal as possible because largely I like to do everything in camera and make shots, you know, because I like to make pictures in camera because I'm a photographer. Uh, if I do everything on the computer, I'm, I suppose, a lot more of a digital artist. Um, but to me, you know, it's very simple processing that I like to use. Okay, that's really useful. And like I said, people can find out a lot more about workflow process and editing photos in one of your your YouTube videos. And I'll include the link to that video in the in the notes for the for the episode. Um, a slightly different element of equipment that I wanted to talk about was that I know that in the past and maybe at the moment you are as well, you've done a lot of using of uh, not just remote triggers that you can use when you're there, but also camera traps that you can leave out and you know you don't have to be there in order for the image to be captured. Could you just say a little bit more about the use of that sort of equipment? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when you get into wildlife photography more, you want to create more and more creative shots. And, and one of the ways, if you look at Natural Geographic and people like that, the camera trap is something that enables you to get shots that are basically impossible for you to make um, if you're on location, because obviously certain subjects aren't going to come out in front of you. You won't be able to use a super wide angle lens with certain subjects. So using a camera trap is a great way of getting a different picture. And it basically comprises of a DSLR, a number of um, flash guns, then a trigger system, often a beam trigger that when the animal walks through the beam, it sets the whole lot off. Um, and they're brilliant in certain ways for creating certain things, but they're also an absolute nightmare because they're very complex to set up. They go wrong all the time. Um, I lose them in rivers when I was photographing kingfishers. I managed to lose a camera that just got washed away and they're expensive to leave out. But when they work and you get the picture, they are just a phenomenal tool. Um, but the process of getting them right is something that you really have to dial in. And I mean, I've been using them for two or three years now, and I'm happy with a good number of the pictures I've got, but I still want to get those perfect shots. I probably have a handful that are perfect. But, you know, for me, it can take up to a year or two years to get that perfect camera trap picture. And that's going back every month and just slightly changing it, readdressing it, making sure that it goes the right way. And of course, Animals being animals, as they never walk where you want them to. Um, so I'll get there with camera traps, but they are a great fun and learning curve to use as part of my wildlife photography. What's, what's one of your favorite photos that you've got so far from the camera trapping work? 
I think it's probably my kingfishers. I mean, two kingfishers sharing um, a male kingfisher passing a female kingfisher, a fish on a branch that's merely three inches from the end of the lens, whilst you have the old bridge that I was talking about earlier photographed in the background and the and the river system as well. Um, that picture took me six months to get, and I actually managed to capture that whilst I was at the bird fair, uh, whilst I wasn't even at home with the camera. And, you know, it really just goes to show that, you know, I was using an old camera, Nikon D300, that I had rigged up with two flash guns. The flash guns are secondhand and cheap and not ridiculously expensive. But sometimes you just have to take a risk and put a camera in a difficult pitch uh, place uh, to get an interesting shot. And, you know, I did lose a camera the week before trying to get that shot. But, you know, that constantly going after it and being determined to get your image is, is the way that camera traps seem to work. And, yeah, that's certainly one of my favorites. And you referred to losing one, losing one that got washed away. I actually wanted to ask what have been some of the kind of most memorable things that have gone wrong in any of your photo photography projects, because presumably the kind of the willingness to let things go wrong or not be afraid to fail is pretty fundamental to getting things right, particularly if you're spending a year, two years on single projects. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, um, in terms of, Equipment is just a tool. Um, when I was younger, I was really obsessed about my equipment. It had to be so clean, so perfect. I didn't want to bash it, knock it, whatever. But now it's just a tool that I use every day. And if I lose a camera, I lose a camera. And, but if I get the shot, it's worth it. Um, and I'm in a very lucky position that I can do that. You know, I have something like nine, ten cameras that I use on various projects um, and different stuff for different things. Um, but, you know, the memorable moments are probably those lost cameras. You know, I've lost about four now in terms of camera trapping. But I still go back and put a camera in the same place because I know that the picture when it comes off will be great. And now on three of those occasions, I finally got the shot that I was after. You know, six months, eight months after you start, when you finally get the picture, it's so worth it. When you've come back to a camera trap 15, 20 times, replaced the batteries, slightly moved it, something's wrong, it's been triggered a thousand times by a wood mouse but you eventually get the shot um it really is it is worth it and something you're really chuffed to get that shot in your hand um but you know in terms of other things like you fail and you muck up all the time sometimes you might have your settings wrong you know you set the the camera to accidentally change the settings to jpeg rather than raw and you shoot something and you've only got jpegs of it and you're gutted by it but the more times you fail the the trick is not to fail twice. If you do something wrong, just make sure you never do it wrong again. Um, because I think if you do something wrong twice, you're a bit of an idiot. Whereas if you learn from your mistakes, then that's a good way to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a pretty, that's a pretty high bar to never make the same mistake twice. Um, but I know what you mean. So, I mean, yeah, learning from your mistakes, basically, is what you're saying. Mm. Use them as a way to improve. Yes, yes. And laugh about them as well. Yeah. Because I tell you what, if you didn't laugh about all the cameras I've lost, you'd probably cry. <laughs> so the way the way that we've been talking so far, uh, we've probably made it sound like your photography is a pretty solitary uh, pursuit. But I was interested in finding out whether or not there's any particular images or projects that you've worked on where there's been required a bit of teamwork involved. Whether it's been setting up a load of camera traps or whether it's been a particularly challenging like geographical situation where you've needed other people to help you get on site on location is there is there any particular experience where teamwork's been a particularly important element of getting the image um 
I think when it comes down to working with people in terms of making conservation images, uh, that's one of the things I find the most difficult um, is kind of directing people to make those shots. Uh, working with the RSPB in the UK, you know, directing some of my friends who are um, volunteers and conservationists to, to, to move in my backgrounds and stuff like that and make interesting conservation pictures is something that is quite difficult. And it takes a lot of teamwork to make sure that the shots come out how you want them. Uh, working abroad often is one that takes a lot of effort and teamwork to make sure that you're in the right position and you've got all the gear you need. And the teams, as much as they're on the ground sometimes, when I've been to the Amazon with the Crees Foundation and people like that, you know, there's a lot of people working uh, to help you out. But also, it's the team of people who are behind you in the UK and everywhere like that. You know, the guys at Nikon UK who help me lend me cameras when I need them and the, the people at Manfrotto and all of these people who help by providing equipment or lending me things or just sorting things out so I can be out in the field and working. You know, the team, as much as you don't see them, they're all there and they're people that you must appreciate the whole time. Um, so they are very important. But uh, in terms of, for me, a lot of my work is very solitary. Um, but a lot of the time it comes down to good friends of mine like yourself and my good friend Luke and Keith really being next to me and putting up with me on location. And I say putting up with me because I am a nightmare in terms of how long I will wait for stuff, how pernickety I am about making sure something is absolutely perfect before I leave it. Uh, but yeah, I, I suppose I am a bit of a perfectionist and a nightmare. <laughs> well, I, think, I think it brings out the results though. I wouldn't worry about it. I think it, you know, it means that you get there in the end and the results certainly speak volumes about the extent to which you're a perfectionist and it's, it's well worth it. Um, would you would you say there's a downside to being too much of a perfectionist? You know, do you think you can take that too far and it can hold you back from ever producing anything? Yeah, I think one of the things I do is like my girlfriend tells me all the time that I do, I don't show people lots of pictures. I mean, I take thousands of pictures, but I don't really show that many people of them all. Um, I'm really bad at that because if they're not perfect, I don't want to show anyone them. Um, and you know, often people tell me like, oh, it's a really great picture. You should show more people it now. And for me, as an artist, I don't like to put something out until I'm 100% convinced by it. And that is probably a bit of my downfall. Um, and I am the perfectionist to the point where, you know, if something's wrong, I will do it and do it and do it and do it again. And if it takes me two years, I'd rather it took me two years than put something that's 95% there. I want it to be 100. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, Sometimes you have to put work out and get it to clients and stuff. But, you know, those are the days that I stay up till 3 a.m. in the morning to make sure it's right before it ships. But, yeah, it can be a downfall, um, especially for quick turnaround stuff. But largely that's why I tend to work on the longer term projects where I can really get my teeth into it and, and use my kind of being a bit of a perfectionist to, to really wait and get the shots I want. Okay, cool. I've just got a few, uh, few, a few photos. <laughs> I've just got a few questions left to round off with. <laughs> There's more than a few photos, and uh, we've already mentioned your website. People should go and have a look at them because they are, they are pretty incredible. So I've just got a few questions left that I wanted to round off with. So the first is, uh, what has been, what have been your best recent purchases? So in recent memory, the past few months, of under a hundred pounds and under five hundred pounds. Okay. One of the best things, um, they're on the desk in front of me, um, my Shure uh, SE215 noise-cancelling headphones. When I travel a lot, 
like I like to be able to listen to podcasts and stuff like that and they're just brilliant I mean they're like 90 quid but in terms of monitoring all my audio for videos and stuff like that they are superb and they really are brilliant so I definitely recommend a pair of them do they, do they they, I'm, I'm actually on the lookout for headphones at the moment do they have a built-in mic no they well you you can get an option that does have a built-in mic the se215 S or something. Uh, they have an inline mic that you can work with ISO um, with Android and everything, you know, and iOS. But these ones are just the standard headphones. Um, I prefer stuff uh, with less things that can go wrong. So for me, I just like them to be solid headphones. But they're brilliant. I, I love these to bits. So, you know, so, I use them on planes. So, so the manufacturer of those is Shure S U R E. S H U R E. S H U R E. Okay, cool. Okay, and then. Uh, under five hundred pounds. Oh God! Um, under five hundred pounds. I don't know why I bought this under five hundred pounds. Um, <laughs> that sounds really bad. Um, cool. What's under five hundred pounds? I bought. Oh yes, um, my Kinesis Scout trigger system. Um, so Kinesis are a new manufacturer of triggers. Um, they make PIR um, and active triggers for camera traps. And the new Scout just system... explain a little bit more for people what that means? Oh, so basically, there are two boxes that create a beam between the two. And when the animal walks through, it sets my camera off. And uh, the Scout system is just probably the most feature-rich um, and well-designed system I've ever used. It's so simple to operate in terms of, you know, it has a lovely LCD that I can just see, you know, the features and everything, program it in. And in terms of getting force triggers, I don't get any of those. And it just captures my subjects perfectly. It really does work very simply out in the field. And that's one of the things you want, especially when you camera trap, is simplicity and effectiveness. And the Scout system is excellent. They're about £430 for a set, but they are simply superb. I actually drenched them in, uh, in a river and the river went the whole way over them, but they're absolutely fine. Um, completely waterproof, brilliant bit of kit. Um, and they have captured some really wonderful uh, photographs over the last couple of months. And yeah, certainly um, they would be my suggestion for anyone who wants to get into a bit of camera trap photography. Nice. Okay, great. Um, similar, along similar sort of lines, what's the favorite image or the, the image you're most pleased with that you've taken in the last six months that people may not even have seen yet um favorite image in the last six months i took a photo of some fly garlic mushrooms the other day um and i was using a very simple camera setup i was just using a 10 to 20 mil wide angle my flash gun um, I haven't shown anyone it and I won't show anyone it for quite a while yet, but it's certainly one of my favorite pictures in terms of its artistic representation of a subject. Um, and I really love the shot. Um, and when I love a shot, I very rarely show people it. So um, you can tell I like it. But yeah, that's got to be my favorite. But also gannets. I work with gannets over the summer. Um, and I produce hundreds and hundreds of pictures that I really like. Um, but there's a very nice one of a gannet holding a load of its... Uh, of the the grass to build its nest and it just it's very comical and i enjoy that quite a bit so that's probably another favorite and that actually actually uh, that's made me think of another question i want to ask so we've talked about peru and the falklands and then we've also talked about some uk wildlife for you 
is there enough wildlife in Britain to kind of satisfy your appetite as a wildlife photographer or do you think you really need to get abroad to really get get what you need in terms of images and kind of satisfying that hunger there's more than enough wildlife in my back garden to satisfy my need as a photographer and I think that often if we look too far afield we miss the chance to make really beautiful pictures because we're always dreaming about why a subject is important rather than the actual image we're trying to create um, and I actually think by defining yourself to a smaller area you can often be more creative so yes there's far more than enough subjects to work with in the UK and I'm sure that over the next you know 30, 40, 50 years of my life, I'll get the chance to photograph thousands of those, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. But of course, travel is always so interesting to go and do, and you know, I won't be saying no to any of the opportunities I get to travel around the world. But of course, you know, for those people who can't, there definitely is more than enough photographic opportunity in your back garden or local woodland um, to make beautiful pictures for the rest of your life. Nice. Um, so, just a couple of questions left, really. Um, which order shall I ask these in? So if you could take one of your photos and have it put on the front page of newspapers across the country to, for people to see up and down the UK, which one would it be and why? Oh, that is a hard question. I'm trying to go through my library of pictures in my head. Um... Cool. It'd be a picture of an architect spider that I took when I was 15. Um, I took the picture under my bed and it's still a favourite picture today because, you know, it's just so local and I'd just like people to know that, you know, there really is wonderful wildlife that you can connect with just about anywhere on the planet and I'd just like people to know that fact. Uh, and not to get worried that they have to travel or anything like that. That would certainly be one of my choices. Um, and I have a picture of a bear waving that is just comical and fun, and I think <laughs> would be another one that just brings people a lot of joy. But funny enough, that actually was on the front cover of a newspaper, so I suppose it's already done that. So you think joy and also helping people to realise the wildlife that's near them that they may not even know about, those are two of the kind of key messages you want to communicate with, with any photo that you've really got out there widely distributed? Yeah, I think because at the end of the day, if people, if people aren't happy and pictures don't make them happy or make them feel a connection to a subject, then they don't want to do something about it. I think by having really positive images, you can really make people love wildlife and hopefully connect with them. You know, all the beautiful, you know, all the hard hitting stuff that's equally beautiful in the way it tells stories um, can put people off because it kind of rams home a message. And it's very important in the work it does. But also I think that connecting people with nature in the first place is, you know, how to get them through the door into doing conservation work in the future. Okay, great. So I just want to finish by asking what can people look forward to from you? So where are you doing some talks in, the, in 2018? What photos might you be, what images might you be publishing? And what projects might you be working on that we might see the results of in, in a year or two? Well, currently I am working over in Ireland quite a bit on a big project, but there'll be more about that in the future because I can't say too much. Um, my Falklands pictures will be out on my website at some point in the future. 
um, definitely. Um, and I'm lecturing at some key events next year. I'm going to be lecturing at the photography show on the Behind the Lens uh, Theatre, as well as on the social media stage as well about my YouTube channel that I'm making. So they're great opportunities to come along and see a boatload of pictures that I've been making over the last couple of years and some of the ones that actually haven't had general release yet. So um, they'll be on showcase then. Um, but of course, you know, I'll be busy working on my YouTube channel. That is a really big project that I'm gonna be massively pushing myself into in 2018. Um, a chance to connect people and teach people about wildlife photography um, and really just answer people's questions and, and help them um, with their own work. Um, and I'm also gonna be taking people behind the scenes on trips that I'm planning at the moment. Um, for the next year. Uh, there might be opportunities for me uh, to travel to some really awesome destinations, but I don't want to say about those yet because I don't like to jinx things. But uh, yeah, there's a lot in the works. Um, but to be honest, I'm still working on my SEAL project from the UK and I'm still um, photographing lots of different subjects, but you know, I'm always trying to bring out images and I promise that in 2018 I will showcase a few more photographs than I have been the last couple of years. <laughs> well that's really good i am i alone am very excited for that because you know i know that you do so much stuff and like you say you you release a very small proportion of it and even some of the ones that i think are just amazing or incredible don't necessarily i think get get the publicity that they deserve so i'm excited to hear you say that you're going to put try and put more stuff out there in 2018 because i think that wildlife and people will only benefit from you doing that so that's really good to hear uh, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up, Tom. That's everything that I wanted to ask. Is there anything that you wanted to say or talk about that we haven't covered? Well, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to you, Matt, for a having me on the show and you know getting me involved. It's fantastic to come and talk to a different audience and share my love for wildlife photography. And I know that you equally have a great passion for wildlife photography and conservation that is great and one of the reasons why we're such good friends. Um, but you know, if people want to check out more of my work, they can find my website. Um, Tom Mason Photo or check out my YouTube channel or equally at Tom Mason Photo actually if you just type in Tom Mason Photo on most of the social media channels you'll find my work um, but no thank you very much for having me on the show and I hope that your audience finds some benefit and use from uh, what we've been talking about today you're very welcome and uh, we'll have to try and hook up again when you're on the well over on this side of the Irish Sea and do some photography at some point Yes, definitely. Cool. Thanks very much, Tom. No worries. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.